Welcome to Books and Authors with Carrie Barber, the podcast where we talk to authors about their new books. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. Today we talk with Alexander Chi, who's the author of the novels Edinburgh and the Queen of the Night. He's an associate professor at Dartmouth College, and his new essay collection is called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. We're talking backstage at the Miami Book Fair, and I'm thrilled that he joins me today. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Your collection is really outstanding. I loved it. It was. I found it really hard to put down. Um, can you talk a little bit about does essay writing come naturally to you? I know you really. You've obviously written a couple of novels. How does essay writing score in the ease department? Oh, essay writing is incredibly difficult, uh, but it does. I don't know that I would say that it comes naturally as much as I have been working on it since my undergraduate years. In this way, the this you know having studied with Annie Dillard, which I write about in it, it became very normal for me to move back and forth between the forms and and to even think about their relationship to each other. Mm. So I think you know the it's funny to me that I have this identity as a novelist sometimes. Sometimes it's funny that I have an identity as an essayist. <laughs> mm. it's, it's sort of, which is to say that I, I have worked on so many essays. Like when I put this collection together, I had about 70 to choose from. So it's, Yeah, I heard you say that, or yeah. I read it somewhere, and I was that blew me away. I could have another collection out next year if I was motivated to, or but I, I don't want to flood the market. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of along those lines, I was really impressed by your inner steel uh, as I was reading. One example that springs to mind is that you didn't take a job at a magazine because you knew it would distract you. I I was really impressed with how you, first of all, have 70 (laughs) essays and how you just keep going. Can Can you talk a little bit about that, how you didn't... It seems like you haven't let yourself get off track with your writing. Well, you know, I think that... It's a, an ev- so 10 of the essays in the collection were previously published. Six of them were not and had been in my files in some cases for 20 years, 15 years. Uh, Girl is an essay that I wrote and then essentially gave up on for, by which I mean I just put it in my files and thought, oh, you know, it's... Uh, it's something that I wrote in my MFA program. And uh, every now and then I would look at it and and think, oh, that's pretty good. I should probably do something with it. And then Guernica wrote to me and said, do you have anything for our gender issue? And I just looked at it and I revised it and sent it to them. And, and then it got into Best American. Um, so I, I just sort of, I don't know that it's, I don't know where my determination is exactly. There's, there's certainly like a, there is a way in which I am always writing. And I am, I suppose it's a kind of stubbornness that sometimes masquerades as resolve. Um, but that is perhaps pettier than that. <laughs> and that sometimes that stubbornness, say, keeps me from sending an essay out when actually I should send it out. Or it also keeps me writing. You know? What did you 
I think Girl is so out, such an outstanding essay. I mean, what did you think? Why did you think it? What didn't make the mark back then? Oh, I mean, I think I had some pretty ridiculous standards for myself that I I don't know. I mean, it was a part of the process, you know, but it's it certainly has resulted in a in a discussion with my agent about like just what else is in those archives that I should probably pull out and show her. So uh, that that process is going on now. Uh, another thing I really loved about this collection was how you talked about money and earning a living while writing your I love that you that you tackled that can you talk a little bit about why why it was important for you to include those things well you know it's interesting I was just talking to a MFA student this morning in another interview who uh, was talking about uh, uh, speculative fiction and money and I she quoted Lynn Barrett here in Florida who I guess has said to her students that money has kind of taken the place of magic in stories, um, which I, th- I think is a fascinating idea. And I, I think, you know, there is too much magic around money, and, or the idea of it as magical is, unfortunately, uh, I mean it's very intriguing. But I am definitely trying to demystify. The process because I think you know for myself when I got out of my MFA program the way to make a living was not immediately apparent and I just kind of uh, fell into any number of traps that I think were easily avoidable so I encourage my students uh, to be very pragmatic to to look for jobs that will let them write that are relatively Undemanding is really the wrong word. Some of them are very, some of these jobs are very rewarding, but they're jobs essentially that leave them with some psychic space to write and that also provide a living for them. I think there was a period where a lot of MFA graduates would fall into the adjunct teaching trap, which is a terrible, terrible trap and, and should really be avoided if possible unless you have you know unless you're like like I, when I did it I was also waiting tables because um, it's so low paying yeah it just was so low paying yeah. and so that allowed me to develop some teaching skills while also surviving eating yeah you know. <laughs> um, and living indoors yeah and having some fun and being like having disposable income to like go out pay for dental work that kind of thing and I, do, I would I also advise my students to take care of their teeth and their feet, because um, those are uh, those are the things that the Writers Guild Emergency Fund is always getting requests on, especially dental work. You know, there's a lot of ways in which this idea. I try to challenge their ideas about how they should support themselves and why. You went to Wesleyan as an undergrad, and I, my hobby horse on this podcast is that every I feel like every time I meet a super creative person, I find out later that they went to Wesleyan. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda, Majora <laughs> Carter, Daniel Handler, Amy Bloom. It, it just, the list goes on and on, and you. So do you, do you have any comment on that? Do you feel like, why do you think that is, or, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean... I remember someone complaining at Wesleyan about how pretentious everyone was. 
And I said, it's practice for figuring yourself out, you know, like a kind of intellectual masquerade. And I think one thing that I really like about Wesleyan grads when I meet them, whenever I do, is that whatever class that they're from, it seems they, they may not be doing what they thought they would be doing, but they have thought about it. They have really, they're not just sort of living some existence where something happened to them and they're not, they're pursuing a different dream, maybe even a better one than the first one. And I like that about it. I don't know what it is about. I think possibly that, you know, certainly the, the lack of uh, requirements that I had as a student, I sometimes regret that in certain ways, but what it, what it forced me to do was to ask myself, what do you actually want to do with all of this? And while it was really overwhelming in one sense, it was also exactly what I needed. Uh, kind of along those lines, in this collection you wrote, sometimes you don't know who you are until you put on a mask. Can you say more about that? Sure. I think it's, we, we think too often of masks as being something that disguises an identity and not enough about how it, it reveals one. And the, the person that you become when you think you're not yourself is also you. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's just a, you know, there's all these people who, these stories, the fantasy of the mask is that you put on the mask, no one knows who you are, you can go live this other life, like, that's also, that's also you, you know. So I think it's a confrontation with that and with that fantasy and uh, with your relationship to the thing that you might run away from is, uh, is all very revealing. No one is hiding. Yeah, yeah. though we think we are, we, yes. though we may think we are, yeah. I recently became aware of your grandmother. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how she may have influenced you? I'm not 100% sure, I don't want to mispronounce her name. Uh, Yi Day Up. Yi Day Up. Yeah, so I created a fellowship in her honor, which I'm assuming is how you yes. came across her, and she is... She was a, uh, a calligraphy artist, a classical Chinese calligraphy, which is a very interesting art because it, uh, it basically is, it's where you treat a poem a little bit like a landscape that you would paint. And the practice was traditionally male for a very long time. And she was, you know, growing up in Japanese occupied Korea and her brothers were being sent off to uh, to be educated in Japan, and uh, and she, her father could tell that she was lonely and and was also sad for not also getting an education, and so he taught her how to mix his inks, uh, which is one of the first preliminary steps for mastery, and. Uh, she eventually went on to become a prize-winning calligraphy artist, but only after having seven children. And uh, you know, after that, her she approached her husband and said, "I would like to do this." And he actually hired. This is very rare in Korea. He hired tutors for her, not one but two, and uh, she began her practice then. But it was the case though that like her art would be in 
on display in the in the house and when I visited no one would ever say your grandmother is this great artist she was just my grandmother we didn't really speak much because I didn't my father didn't want me to speak Korean it's, it was partly like I think about assimilation but also he used to joke you know if you can't understand your grandfather you won't obey him you know, which was this sort of wow. way of slipping off the patriarchal yoke she she died essentially without me knowing the magnitude of this and that made me very sad but I would say you know the I think about her a lot I've it's been it's been a lot for me to honor her with this fellowship at the Jack Jones Literary Arts Retreat. You know, we had three fellows this year. The fellowship is designed in particular to encourage uh, older Asian and Asian American women to who are trying to return to an arts career uh, in writing. It's been very gratifying. Yeah, to that. that's that's really cool. So, how did you finally find out that she was this great artist? Well, my grandfather published a book about her, which is very unusual, okay. and and then asked, you know said he was setting up a foundation oh. for her art, and and so that's when I was I was like, why is there a foundation for her art? <laughs> Were you ever gonna get around to telling me about her? Wow. <laughs> um, were any of you ever going to get around to that? Uh, yeah, it's just really, it, it was it was incredibly shocking to see her both honored this way after her death, but also, yeah, strange. I'm, I'm going to write about it all someday, for mm, sure. I yeah. love that you did that fellowship. That's really cool. Okay, well, I'm afraid we are out of time. So How to Write an Autobiographical Novel is the new essay collection. Alexander Chi, what a delight it is to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Books and Authors. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 